to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. Continue our series on missions and the Great Commission. And here we see sober, somber, but not unjoyful words from the Lord Jesus Christ about the certainty of the persecution to come for those who belong to him. John 15, 18 through 25. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not from the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and they have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, which says they hated me without a cause. Let's go to the Lord. O oh Christ, we would have not written the script this way. We would have never asked for persecution to be included in the package of what it means to follow you. And yet, Christ, you were very clear, you were very honest, you were upfront. There was no fine print when you beckoned us and summoned us to be your disciples. When you, I mean, the very terms in which you called us to be Christians. O oh Lord, is to take up a cross and follow you, Lord. A cross, we understand, is a Roman instrument of torture and death. And to follow you to a place of execution is our calling. Because when you call a man, you bid him to come and die. And yet, Lord, we know, we know that we don't need to fear those who merely kill the body but cannot kill the soul, that we only have to fear the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and rules all things. So Christ, we come to you sheepish. We come to you fearful. We come to you lacking certainty. We come to you feeling ill-equipped to be able to engage the world with the gospel. We come not as lions, but more like lambs that would rather, that prefer to stay back and be silent. And, and yet, Lord, this is not the life that you have designed for us. And so, Christ, I pray for me, for this flock here, that we would be so bolstered, we would be so strengthened, we would be so undergirded, we would be so reinforced by what you have revealed in the pages of scripture that theology would be reality to us. That we would see that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. That we would be persuaded, we would be upheld by the reality that Christ, you are far above all rule and authority and every power, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come that you rule heaven and earth, that nothing happens except unless you have ordained it to happen. Oh Lord, you have ordained even the days of our life. Even before we were born, you had written the book of our days, every chapter, including the ones filled with pain. So Lord, I pray for this little flock, that they would be a hardy people, 
a hearty people who cling to the sacred text of Holy Scripture above all things, that your word would be the, would be the iron rebar that would strengthen us, that, that, would be, that we would have backbones of theological steel. Oh, Lord, please help us. And, Lord, we're just people. We're just dust. Lord, I know that there are endless needs. Even in a congregation of just this size, there are endless needs, endless worries, endless anxieties, endless burdens. Oh, Lord, and I pray, I pray for this precious flock, not merely that the burdens would be less or that the problems would go away, but what I do ask for is heightened trust in your sovereignty. What I ask is for sharper clarity on your character, greater affection for your glory, greater hunger for your beauty in the midst, in and through all of the trials that you have deliberately put into their lives. Oh Lord, we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood. Help us. Help us, O oh Lord, to reflect and portray and display who you are to the world. That we may be used, even us, to advance your global cause. And I pray right now, you know how weak I feel. You know how needy I am. You know how even frazzled I feel in my own heart right now. And I pray that you would use your word as the gravitational force that pulls us in and rivets our attention on what you have to say, O oh Christ, in this text. Help me, help me to preach as a dying man to dying men. I pray that you would use this sacred text to transform us, to embolden us, to give us lion-hearted courage and broken-hearted compassion. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. According to the laws of physics, when two objects collide, there will always be damage of a collateral nature. And then there's the law of inertia, which says that an object may preserve its velocity and direction only so long as there is no contrary force that opposes that object, right? For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And my interest this morning is not so much the laws of physics, but the reason why I say this is because there is a spiritual parallel between the laws of physics and persecution. Because where two objects collide, there is always damage of a collateral nature. And in this case, the two objects that collide are you, and the world in which you live as representatives of Jesus Christ and the damage as a result, the collateral damage as a result is what the Bible calls persecution. Because to be sure, you can maintain your velocity and your direction as a slave of Christ in this world for a while, but every action you perform as a Christian has an equal and opposite reaction, and the name for the reaction for what you do as a Christian is what the Bible calls persecution. And the Lord Jesus prepared us for this, didn't he? He was honest. He was very honest about what we could expect as his representatives in the world. I mean, did he not say in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Did he not say in Luke 21, 17, You will be hated by all for my name. Did he not say in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That is exactly what he said. And in fact, he said that very thing in the passage we're going to see this morning. And the reason he did is because in our passage this morning, Christ is down to his final moments with his disciples. You remember the scene. They're eating their last meal together in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem and they no longer have hours together. They're now down to minutes, minutes before Christ is betrayed and arrested and betrayed and tortured and crucified and publicly executed. 
And yet on the list of conversation topics over dinner was the suffering and the persecution that they would endure as his representatives. And what's so interesting to me about the way he talks to them about persecution is how logical it is. He uses logic to talk to them about persecution. In other words, in a series of if-then statements, he very calmly and very rationally unfolds for them the spiritual logic of discipleship and persecution. And he warns them, when two objects collide, there is always damage of a collateral nature. When you belong to me, he says, you will collide with the world and that damage, the collateral damage is a result, as a result is what we call hatred and hostility and opposition and persecution and maybe even martyrdom. You've been warned. And yet I don't, want to, I don't want you to misunderstand what Christ is doing here because what he's doing is not merely giving a gloomy forecast of what's to come. He's not saying, oh, golly, sorry, I, I should, I forgot to tell you, you're going to be hated by everybody because of me. But now you know, have a great ministry, have a great life, I'll see you in heaven. No, he's not just throwing them to the wolves here. No, you see, he not only tells them about the inevitability of persecution, he also tells them about the power to preach in spite of the persecution. The Christian life is not a suicide mission. This is a salvation mission to reach God's elect through the proclamation of the gospel. And that is precisely the mission that I want you to be inspired to participate in more than ever this morning. Because you know, you know that we're in the middle of a series right now called Invincible and Impossible and Invincible. And the reason why we call it that is because it's both of those things at the same time. It is impossible for us as sheep in the midst of wolves, but for the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah, it is absolutely invincible. This is certain. This is, this is guaranteed. This is going to happen. You understand that. And the reason for that is because the invincible purpose of God is that the gospel spread to all the peoples of the world and take root in God-centered, Christ-exalting churches. And I believe, by God's grace, we can be that kind of church. That we can be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. That we can be a multiplying ministry the glory of Jesus Christ, but you see, I would be amiss. I would be in error. I would have failed you as a pastor if in a series on missions, I didn't talk to you about the certainty of the persecution to come. Because we all want Psalm 67, don't we? We all want the finish line. We all want, let the nations be glad and let them shout for joy. We want, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We want that, and we should want that. But we fail, and we forget to see that the path getting to the global joy of all the nations is strewn with the mangled bodies of our comrades and the blood of the martyrs, of which you may be some. So this morning, I want you to have courage. Courage to speak. Courage to preach. Courage to proclaim. Courage to love. Courage to disagree. To disagree with friends. To proclaim to fellow employers, students on your campus, baristas at Starbucks. Courage to proclaim maybe even to those in your own family. Courage not merely to speak for Christ, but even, even, yes, even if need be, to suffer for him. So let's go to the text. 2,000 years, 7,000 miles away to an ancient Airbnb in downtown Jerusalem in which Christ unfolded for his disciples this, the spiritual logic of discipleship and persecution. Here is where we're going. If you have notes, even if you don't, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see eight surprising facts. 
Eight surprising facts about persecution that you would have never guessed could be true, but they totally are. Eight surprising facts about persecution that you would have never guessed could be true, but they totally are. And yet before we see one of those, let's go to the text. Let's see the spiritual logic of discipleship and persecution. Let's begin first with the inevitability of persecution. The inevitability of persecution, verses 18 through 21. Now, it's very surprising to me, and I think it'll be surprising to you, that in verses 9 through 17, the passage just before this, Christ was just talking to his disciples about radical love and affection. The passage just before this. Now, all of the sudden, in verses 18 through 25, he's talking about hostile hatred and persecution. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem like there's any connection between those two things. Radical love and hostile persecution doesn't have anything to do with one another. Or do they? They do, because you know why? The world doesn't only persecute Christians when they are obnoxious and overzealous, but even when they are faithful to display radical love and affection. Sometimes it doesn't matter how sweet or kind or loving or sacrificial you may be. The very fact that you represent Jesus Christ will automatically make you an object of hatred and disgust. You understand that love doesn't necessarily solve all of your problems. That being a loving person doesn't necessarily make you everybody's buddy. And Christ himself was proof of this very thing, was he not? Nobody, I mean, nobody loved more or loved better than Christ. And yet he was betrayed by a friend and murdered by his enemies. In fact, that's precisely what he says in verse 18. In fact, in verses 18 through 21, Christ gives four logical statements about persecution. And look what he says in verse 18, logical statement number one. He says, if the world hates you, you know you know that it hated me before it hated you. And you see the logic? The if-then statement here, if this, then this, that's logic. That's logic. And what's really interesting is that in the Greek language, there are multiple ways to say the word if. There's multiple ways to make a conditional statement in the Greek language. For instance... If the moon were made of cheese is one kind of if statement. And if there are many countries in the world armed with nuclear weapons that want to use them is another. Do you hear the difference between those two? One is theoretical, the other is real. Newsflash, Christ is not being theoretical, he's being real. Christ is assuming that the world did and does hate those who belong to him. He's just assuming that the world filled with billions and billions of people have a common interest, a common object of hatred and disgust. And it's us. We are that object. The world hates you. Even if it doesn't know you, it hates you. Even if they don't know you, they hate you. And if they don't hate you, when they find out the one to whom you belong, they will hate you. I mean, even if they don't know what Christianity really teaches, it doesn't matter. They will hate you. I mean, for all the world's talk about not judging other people, that's almost all they do, especially to the slaves of Christ. They judge them. They assume the worst about them. They do not care to find out what our message really is or what it is we actually truly believe. That's a fact. That's undeniable. And if you think I'm exaggerating, then I highly recommend that you subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs magazine, which every month publishes gruesome stories and pictures, I'll have you know, of the church being brutally persecuted all over the world. I'm not making this up, and neither is Christ. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand here. Neither he nor I am playing the victim card. I'm not saying at all that we should feel sorry for ourselves because we shouldn't. And I'm not saying that there aren't 
exceptions to the rule because there are not every individual unbeliever hates our guts, but by and large, the world as a whole is not super excited to have you around. You are not welcome here. You understand that, right? And yet the question is, why exactly does the world hate you? The Bible's clear and unambiguous. It's because everything for which Christ stands and everything that Christ represents is a threat to the things they treasure the most. You understand that the gospel is like a steel dental probe jammed into the raw, unmedicated nerve of the sins that they treasure the most. So it makes sense, doesn't it? If the world would not be particularly crazy about people like us. It does make sense because that is logic. And yet if there's an if, then there must also be a then, right? And there is a then. Look at the second half of verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, then you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And that's true, isn't it? The disciples did know that. They did. They had personally witnessed the hatred of the world for their master. They heard the jokes. They heard the insults, the accusations, and the death threats. Twice they witnessed angry mobs pick up stones to kill him. One time the people of his own hometown tried to throw him off a cliff when he claimed to be the Messiah. Oh, they knew. They had firsthand eyewitness testimony of the hatred for their master. And so do not be surprised if the world hates you. I mean, think about it. The church was inaugurated. The church came into existence with its founder being impaled like a piece of bloody flesh on a Roman instrument of torture and death. It only makes sense that the world would come after us too. And yet I don't want you to lose perspective either. I don't want you to lose perspective either because the hatred that you will experience as a Christian will be painful and it will be real, but it is nothing that Christ himself didn't first experience and way more severely than you. Never forget that the master took the first bullet of persecution. Which brings us to logical statement number two. Look at verse 19. He says, if you were of the world... The world then would love you as its own. But because you are not from the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Do you see the logic? If you were from the world, then the world would love you as its own. Meaning what? What does it mean to be from the world? Well, it means very simply that if you share the same sin-celebrating perspectives of the world, if you share the same spiritual disorder as the world, then naturally the world is going to love you. They're going to think you're incredible. Why? Because you play for the same team. You have the same desires. You hate the same God. You, you love the same sin. The world loves those who celebrate the values for which it stands. But the problem is, or should I say, the good thing is, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you aren't from the world. That doesn't mean that you're better than the world. It just simply means that you don't share the same perspectives. You don't have the same spiritual disorder, at least not anymore. You don't play for the same team. You love the God they hate. You are learning to hate the sin that they love. In other words, all this is is simply another way of saying that you have been saved by sovereign grace that you have been redeemed and reconciled by the infinite mercy of Jesus Christ. In that sense, you are not from the world. And yet, and yet, although, although I hate to say it, for some of you, these words might not actually apply to you because some of you might actually be from the world. Some of you will never ever be persecuted by the world because the world loves you way too much to do that. And what I mean is, although you might be a Christian in name or religious preference, some of you might not actually have 
salvation. You have not yet truly yielded your life to Jesus Christ, and how you can tell is because you are romanced and captivated by the world. You can tell because you are indistinguishable from the world. You blend in with the world. You are just like the world, other than what you claim with your mouth. There is no evidence in your mouth of the supernatural, in your life, of the supernatural and the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And so right now, I am calling you to break off the engagement with the world, to end the affair with the world, to stop playing games and yield yourself to the king. Because all the meaning and significance and satisfaction you're hoping to find in the world can only actually be found in him. But for those who do belong to Christ, the question is, okay, well, what is the ultimate reason why we are not from the world? Another way to ask it is, okay, what happened to you that explains why it is that you are no longer a slave to sin under the wrath and judgment of God? What happened to you? Christ gives the answer in verse 19. Look at the text. He says, because you are not from the world, but I chose you out of the world for this reason the world hates you see the reason you are no longer from the world because jesus christ chose you out of the world or to put it this way the deepest explanation for your salvation is your predestination the deepest explanation for your salvation is your predestination. You got saved not because you came to your senses and figured it out on your own. Oh, I get it now on my own without God's intervention. No, you got saved ultimately because Jesus Christ chose you before the foundation of the world. And had he not done that, mark my words, you and I would still be prisoners to our sin under the wrath and judgment of God as we speak. And you see, when that lands on you with stunning force that your salvation is owing entirely to God's sovereign initiative and choice, well, then let's just say it becomes really hard to have any room anymore for the supremacy of the self. How could we? How could we exalt ourselves with even a millimeter of superiority, even over the most despicable sinner in existence, when the only explanation for our salvation is the sovereign choice of Jesus Christ? You see, you are not from the world, not because you're better than the world, but because Jesus Christ chose you out of the world, and yet you are still in the world so that you can give your life to reach the world brings us to logical statements three and four. Three and four. Look at verse 20. Christ says, remember the word which I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. You know, according to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, no one for any reason has any right to persecute anyone else on the basis of race, color, sex, or religion. And I'm all for that. And you're all for that. We, we want that. That's great. We are so grateful that that can be a thing. And, and yet, although that might be legally true, it's not very logical. What I mean is, although your civil rights are a fantastic idea, because you belong to, and you are a representative of Jesus Christ, your civil rights are not going to protect you. Not for long. Not from persecution, anyway. When push comes to shove, your civil rights are going to go right out the window. Do you know why? Because people hate Christ more than they love the idea of protecting your civil rights. Look what Christ just said. He said, remember the word which I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. Do, do you see what he's doing here? He's preparing the disciples and us for the inevitable, namely hatred and animosity of the world. And notice the proverb that he uses to punctuate his point. A slave is not greater than his master. And that's true, isn't it? A slave isn't greater than his master. Another way to say it is, 
An employee isn't greater than the boss. The, the, the one healed is not greater than the physician who healed him, put it in salvation terms. The one saved is not greater than the one who saved him. So the point is, although we are hardwired to believe that we should always be treated according to how we think we deserve, the cold reality is a slave is not greater than his master. The connection is, if the master... The infinitely worthy one took one for the team. What the heck do you think is going to keep the slaves from taking one also? If they would crucify God the Son on a Roman torture device, then why then would they hesitate to do the very same to his slaves? Answer, they wouldn't. They wouldn't hesitate, and they have not hesitated for the last 2,000 years. That's why he predicts in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. There's the logic. There's the logic. If they were willing to assassinate the master, and they were, and they did, then they will not hesitate to take you out. And yet notice the text. Logical statement number four, to our great relief, to our great relief, there's not only blood and guts and persecution, there's also redemption. There's also salvation. Look at the end of verse 20. He says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Here it is, number four, if they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. Meaning what? Meaning yes, yes, to be sure. There were many of those who hated Christ and who wanted him dead, but there were also many in his life who believed. They kept his word. They turned from sin. They bowed the knee. In other words, there were people in his ministry who got saved. Not everybody rejected. Some repented. And it will be the exact same with you. You are called to proclaim the exact same message that Christ himself proclaimed, which means you will receive the exact same responses that Christ himself received. Some will reject, others will repent. Some will want to kill you, and some will want to join you. And all of that has really profound implication, doesn't it? See, Christ does not ask us to endure anything that he himself did not first endure. The master took the first bullet, didn't he? He took the first punch. He willingly crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside. Which means, which means we've got nothing to lose and nothing to fear in persecution. We enter through no darker rooms than he went through before. And he that to God's kingdom comes must enter by this door, namely the door of persecution. Because you remember what the apostle said in Acts 14.22, don't you? Through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Here's the question that troubles me, and maybe it troubles you. The question is why? Why is it exactly that the world hates Christ so much? And why do they hate his people? I mean, what did he do to them? I mean, why we, I mean, look at us. Why are we such a threat to the world? And Christ gives the answer in verse 21. Look at the text. But all these things they will do to you for my name. Why? Because they do not know the one who sent me. And there it is. There's the reason. Do you hear it? The world hates Christ and the world hates you because it does not know the Father. The issue has nothing to do with lack of evidence for Christianity because there is plenty of evidence. Rather, the issue has everything to do with the Father. They don't know Him. They don't know that He's a God of infinite love and mercy. 
They don't see him for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. They are blind. They are dead. They are damned. They are helpless. They are slaves, just as we ourselves once were before we were awakened by sovereign grace. It's a little flock you need to know. If the world hates you, you just, you just got to know there's, there's nothing personal. It's nothing personal. It's because they hate the Father. They, they think he gets in the way of what it is that they think will make them happy. And they're just taking it out on you. And, and, and so, friends, you just need to know your friends and your family, they're going to mock your beliefs as superstitious and pre-scientific, not because they actually are, but only because they do not know the Father. Fellow students on your campuses and fellow employees at your jobs, they're going to misrepresent you and they're going to report you and they're going to be disgusted by the gospel simply because they do not know the Father. The Father who sent his Son to die in the place of hell-deserving sinners. Bosses and employers, they're going to silence you and they're going to warn you and they're going to fire you only because they do not know the father who crushed his own son to save sinners from eternal woe and despair. They do not know the father. But they could know him. They could know him. If only someone told him about the father, which illogical though it may seem, that is exactly what you are called to do. The father who sent the son. Which brings us next to the undeniability of the world's guilt. The undeniability of the world's guilt, verses 22 through 25. <laughs> and one of the strangely ironic and humorous things about having children is that their sin is just so blatantly obvious. When they're really little, their attempts to hide their sin is, is not very good, and so their attempts to hide their sin is epically hilarious. For instance, for instance, one of our kids, I won't tell you which one, when uh, she was about four years old, uh, when she was asked if she washed her hands after she used the restroom, her answer was, of course, that yes, I, I did wash my hands. The problem is mom never actually heard the water running in the bathroom, and so my wife, being an expert in deductive reasoning, by the way, checked the crime scene, namely the bathroom sink, and discovered and, and asked the suspect why it is the sink was still dry if, in fact, she did wash her hands. And out of the culprit's mouth came the most creative work of fiction in the history of the world in which she claimed, get this, that while washing her hands, a spider fell into the sink, at which time she grabbed a towel and tried to squash the spider in the sink with the towel, which thus made the entire sink dry, proving that she did, in fact, wash her hands, even though it looks like she didn't. Not guilty, Your Honor. But, but when Sarah checked the towel to see if it was damp and smelled the suspect hands to see if they were clean, no surprise, there's something rotten in Denmark. Dry sink, dry towel, no dead spider, dirty hands. The point is, her guilt was undeniable. That's exactly Christ's point in verses 22 through 25. I mean, despite the world's claim, ironically, to be virtuous and innocent, the world's got dirty hands, and there isn't a self-made soap in the universe that can take away the stench. Look at the logic in the text. You notice in verse 22, an if statement. Verse 24, another if statement, which means Christ is about to give two logical statements about the guilt of the world that prepare his disciples to still live in the world as his representatives. So logical statement number one, look at verse 22. He said, if I did not come and speak to them, they would not have sinned. But now they do not have an excuse for their sin. Do you see the logic he uses there? If he had never come and appeared and preached the sermons he did to those who heard them, the people of his day would not have sin. Now, don't misunderstand here. Christ didn't mean that they wouldn't have 
any sin if he showed up. He just simply means that had he showed up, they would not be guilty of the particular sin of rejecting him. Because the Bible is unanimous and clear, isn't it? Every single person without exception, well, actually, except for Christ, every single person is born guilty of eternal wrath and judgment, including, yes, the proverbial hypothetical man in Africa who's never heard the gospel, him too. He's not innocent. He's guilty. But you have to understand, the the arrival of Christ to the planet brought about a new level of moral and spiritual accountability. It raised the stakes. It upped the ante because had he not come, the people of his day would only be guilty for the truth that they had rejected up until that point, which was enough to send them to hell forever. But because he had revealed himself as God's final ultimate answer to everything, for that reason, the level of truth to which they would be held accountable would be as high as it could possibly go. That's what he means, because look what he says in the second half of the verse. He says, if I did not come and speak to them, they would not have sinned. But now they do not have an excuse for their sin. The point is, the people of Christ's day, they could not claim ignorance for their rejection of Christ. They couldn't say, well, I didn't know that he claimed to be the king and savior of the world. Uh, There was no evidence to prove that he was who he claimed to be. I didn't see anything. We didn't know that he claimed to be the fulfillment of everything we had been waiting for. We didn't know that he claimed to be God in human flesh. No, they did know that, and that is exactly why they killed him. And that is the standard to which they would be held accountable. And guess what? If you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't belong to King Jesus, that is also the standard of truth to which you will be held accountable also. If you don't know Christ, if you don't belong to him, you you now know that Jesus Christ claims to be Lord and King and Savior and treasure and that he is the source of life and truth and 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 the salvation that rescues us from what we most deserve. That is what he has claimed and you know it and you've heard it. And just so you know, what is heard cannot be unheard, but it can be believed. It can be embraced, and you must embrace it. Embrace by faith the one who is Lord and King and Savior and treasure of the world. Which brings us to the next logical statement about the guilt of the world. Look at the second statement. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, the one who hates me hates my father also. If I did not do the works among them, which no one else has done, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and they have hated both me and my father also. Do do, do you see that? The theology embedded in verses 23 and 24? It's a devastating theological claim. Look at what he says. The one who hates me hates my father also. Do you see what he does? He claims to be equal with God. He just demonstrated that the relationship between he and the Father is so indistinguishable that to hate one is to hate the other. You don't get to pick and choose. The the persons of the Trinity are not sold separately. To hate the Son is to hate the Father because A, he speaks from God, B, he speaks for God, and C, he speaks as God. Which brings us to the logical statement in verse 24. Look at the text. So that if I did not do the works among them, which no one else has done, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and they have hated both me and my father. Do you see the logic? If he hadn't come and done the miracles that he did right in front of their faces, they would, they would not have sin. Meaning not that they would be sinless, but again, the issue is that his arrival and the miracles that he did raised the stakes. It brought about a new level of moral and spiritual accountability. Because again, again, we just got to say it. People are guilty of eternal, conscious torment 
forever, whether they've heard of Christ or not, or whether Christ showed up at all. But you see, when people are faced with the person of Christ and the claims of Christ and the message of Christ and the proof of Christ, the standard of truth to which they are held accountable becomes as high as it could possibly go. And notice precisely what he said. If I did not do the works among them, which no one else has done. What does he mean, works? You know what he means. You know exactly what he means. He does not mean random acts of kindness or doing nice things for people. Rather, he means supernatural acts of sovereign power. He means things which have no human or scientific explanation, but rather only have one explanation. Namely, this is God in human flesh. I think we call those miracles, don't we? And notice what he says. If I had not done the works, which no one else has done. No one else has done these. And you think, well, okay. Other people did miracles too. That's not true. No, they didn't. Not like this. Not like this. The miracles of Christ differed in their force and in their intensity and in their frequency, meaning he did way more than anybody else and he did them way better than them. Think about it. Christ raised multiple people from the dead, including himself, by the way. Proof, John 10, 18. He healed the unhealable. He cured the incurable internal bleeding, birth defects, leprosy. and Sometimes he healed people from another zip code. He controlled hurricane winds with his mind powers. He changed the molecular structure of water into wine in an instant from across the room. He multiplied enough bread and fish to feed a football stadium. He read people's minds. No one else did these kinds of things. And he did them right in front of their face. And so this was proof that God himself has, had visited the planet. And yet, and yet, notice more tragic than a Shakespeare play. Look at verse, the end of verse 24. Even though I did countless miracles, which no one else has done, they have both seen and they have hated both me and my father. Apparently, seeing isn't believing, is it? Because these people saw things with their very own eyes. And not only did they disbelieve, they hated. They not only disbelieved, they hated. Think about that. Which tells us these people, these people, they did not need more evidence to prove what was true. They needed new hearts to allow them to believe what they already knew to be true. And I would argue that the same goes for anyone in this room or anyone that you know who is skeptical of the claims of Christ. Now, if you're skeptical of the claims of Christ, if you're skeptical of the claims of Christ, and, and, and for you, the issue is like that you just want to really research and you really want to explore and you really want to count the cost before you make a decision of this magnitude, fair enough, you should totally do that. But if you think that more evidence is required than what is already provided in the four historically verified first-hand eyewitness accounts of the Gospels, then I argue no evidence will persuade you. Because what you need is not more evidence to persuade you, but divine power to open your eyes to the proof that is already there, which is what they needed. And I, I know, and I realize, you, you did not wake up, you did not roll out of bed this morning thinking, man, I really hope I hear something about persecution. Drinking your coffee, eating your bacon and eggs. Oh, man, I hope we hear about persecution today. Oh, that'd be so sweet. Let's get there. Let's go early. Maybe Jared will preach a pre-sermon on persecution for us. Let's get two. You didn't come here for that. And this doesn't feel encouraging at first. Because the question we want to ask is, wasn't there another way? Wasn't there another way to build the church without murder and bloodshed and persecution of our comrades? I mean, is this plan actually working or not? Because a persecuted church doesn't feel like it's working. 
And yet, what if I told you? What if I told you that even the persecution was all part of the plan? What if I told you that the hatred and hostility that the church would receive had already been predicted in Holy Scripture? I would hope you would believe that because that's exactly what Christ says. Look at verse 25. He says, but all this must happen. I'm kind of filling in the blanks here. All of this must happen. The hatred, the hostility, the opposition, the persecution, it all must happen. Why? Get this. In order that the word which has been written in their law should be fulfilled. Which says, Emisandorean. They hated me without a God. So much more should and could be said about this verse. But let me simply say this. Christ just told his disciples, told us that all the undeserved hatred he would receive had already been predicted in the pages of Holy Scripture centuries beforehand. And what that means is Christ being hated and rejected did not signal the failure of God's plan, but the fulfillment of God's plan, which means even persecution is meant to serve the unstoppable mission of the church. And that's surprising. It's very surprising. And that leads me now to eight, very quickly, eight surprising facts about persecution that you would have never guessed could be true, but they totally are. Here they are. You're in your notes if you've got them. We're going fast. Surprise number one. Persecution is not merely a result of being a Christian. It is a design of God to advance the Great Commission. It's not merely a result. It's a design. How does that work? How does that work? Because, because when you suffer like Christ, for Christ, you in that moment display Christ, which is an instrument used to draw them to Christ. Does that make sense? When you suffer as a Christian, you embody, you portray, you exhibit, you display the very sufferings of Christ in that moment. And that is a means used to draw lost people to himself. Surprise number two. Persecution does not extinguish the church. Rather, it inflames the church to greater missionary zeal. It does not extinguish the church. It inflames the church to greater missionary zeal. And we see this in the book of Acts, don't we? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Listen. On that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were, notice, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Three verses later, therefore, those who had been scattered went about doing what? Hiding in their homes? No, preaching the word. Acts eleven nineteen. those who were scattered because of the persecution made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word. Two verses later, and the hand of the Lord was with them. With who? With those who were scattered in the persecution. And it says that many who believed were turned to the Lord. The point is God even makes persecution serve the unstoppable mission of the church. Surprise number three. Persecution means not only that you have the right message, but that you're getting the right message right. And not only means that you have the right message, but that you are getting that message right. Now, let's be clear. You should never be an obnoxious jerk. But if you were committed to getting the gospel right to the people in your life, and you should be committed to that the pushback you're going to receive is not a sign that you're doing something wrong, but that you're doing everything right. Surprise number four. Persecution is a sign of God's blessing and favor. Persecution is a sign of God's blessing and favor, which sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, persecution does not really qualify according to the hashtag blessed life, according to the standards of Instagram but it is according to the standards of Scripture. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, those who had been persecuted went on their way, kairantes, rejoicing. Why? Because they were found worthy to suffer for the name. 1 Peter 3.13, 3, 
If you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. 1 Peter 4.14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed, it says. Why? Because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests on you. Suffering and persecution is the hashtag blessed life. Surprise number five. Persecution is wonderful evidence that you are godly and righteous. Persecution is wonderful evidence that you are godly and righteous. Because 2 Timothy 3.12 says, does it not? Now those who belong to Christ Jesus will, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. What that means is, is if you're not persecuted for your godliness or righteousness, it means A, you're not around unbelievers nearly often enough. B, you are not nearly vocal enough about your faith. Or C, you are not as godly or righteous as Christ calls you to be, which means something has to change. Surprise number six. Persecution reveals who is an authentic Christian and who might very well be a counterfeit. Persecution reveals who is an authentic Christian and who might very well be a counterfeit because as one writer put it, show me a professing Christian of whom all men speak well and I will show you someone who is probably unfaithful to their Lord. Surprise number seven. The same act that gets you persecuted is the same act that saves your persecutors. The same act that gets you persecuted is the same act that saves your persecutors. And by that mean is the, the proclamation of the gospel. Because Ro, Paul says in Romans 10, 13 through 15, does he not? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, but how then will they call upon him? Whom, how then will they believe if they have not heard? And, and how will they call upon him if they do not believe? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Good question, Paul. I guess my job as a pastor is to send you out to preach. Surprise number eight, and then we're done. Persecution and suffering for Christ increases your heavenly reward. Persecution and suffering for Christ increases your heavenly reward. In other words, the more persecution you endure for the gospel, the more you reward you will receive for being persecuted. More suffering for Christ equals more reward. I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. I read it twice last week. Blessed, literally, happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are you when people reproach you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. The point is, they can take your freedom, and they probably will. They can take your job, and they might. They can take your kids away from you. That's not crazy. They can take your job. Did I already say that? And they might even be able to take your life. But one thing they can never get your hands on is your heavenly reward, which is everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure in Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. You've literally got nothing to lose. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth, Still, his kingdom is forever. Let's go to the Lord.
Oh Lord, not the message we necessarily wanted, but it is the one we needed. And Lord, I confess my own fear, my own love of comfort. I confess, oh Lord, that it's theory is easy. I love theory. It's hard to look lost people in the eyes and to begin to enter into a relationship and a conversation that could get backlash, that could get pain, that could get difficulty, challenge, hatred, hostility, opposition, persecution. Lord, we pray right now for our comrades all over the world. I think especially, not just limited to them, but especially our comrades in the Muslim world, underground, singing worship songs in silence, in whispers, so that they don't have to get arrested midway through a service. We pray for our comrades in China and those lurking deep underground in North Korea. Strengthen them. Give them strength. May your word, may your word be a great refuge for them. The little truth that they, to which they might, may have been exposed, I pray that it would ground them and sustain them and solidify them and, and satisfy them and give them courage to speak. Oh Lord, you bless us that all the ends of the earth may know him. Oh Lord, the window is closing. It feels, oh Lord, when we will have the freedom to speak. Let us seize upon the opportunities now. And Lord, let us be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, a few things happening here at the church. And every announcement that we give is connected to our mission. It's connected to everything we just talked about right here. But number one on the list, which I don't even know what the first announcement is at this point, but... Um, uh, one thing I will say is I want to give a, a, a huge thanks to my friend Seth Weber and his wife Caitlin who flew down here from Washington State. Seth spent all weekend with a group of hardy servants from our church teaming together, assembling all the technology in the back and Seth giving everyone a, a crash course in training. So I'm grateful to my friend Seth who I've known for years. I got to do he and his wife's wedding. Um, we got to do premarital with them. And so Seth is one of the most precious people on the planet to me, and I'm grateful for him to take life out of time out of life and ministry to come here and help us as a church. And so, uh, so you people at home, Seth Weber is your man. Uh, make all checks uh, payable to Seth Weber at... No, I'm just, just kidding. Um, but no, we're real grateful for his service and everyone else who, who is part of that, part of that team. Uh, first thing is, uh, every once a month we want to get together. We want to pray as a church. Uh, we are um, uh, the church unassailable. The church is the means through which God advances his plans. We want to pray together. We've been doing this uh, a handful of months now on the first Sunday of each month. September 6th at 5 p.m. We're going to do a prayer summit, another time to pray together. Actually, go back. Um, and uh, at the same time, we're also going to make it sort of a family night. So there'll be an extended time just to hear from you and, and have you ask questions about what the elders are thinking. Actually, we'll, we'll give you an update as far as where we're headed for the fall. And we'll just kind of update you on our 20-year plan and where we're at in that 20-year plan and then have you guys ask questions about anything you're curious about. We just want to, we haven't been amazing at this, but we just want to keep lines of communication open, feel like we're accessible to you. So we'll do that. And then we'll pray together. We'll, we'll pray and especially about the, the strategic things that we want to be and do for the fall. So that's September 6th. I encourage everyone to be a part of that. It'll be a huge Zoom meeting. Let's just go for it. And uh, you'll get the uh, address, the, the link to that uh, soon. Uh, next one is, and this is, this is, this is really huge, uh, we're committed to doing biblical and theological training here at Christ Community because, again, theology is reality. A church is only as strong and healthy as its doctrine is deep. And doctrine is not theoretical for us. It's not like, well, let's learn some data, but then have it disconnect with our whole life. No, no. 
our lives are to be transformed by the doctrine that we learn. And so we've got several classes coming this fall. Starting, uh, let me start with um, September 8th. We're going we're gonna to do biblical Greek here. Uh, in fact, right out this door, I think, in one of the portables. I love portables. It remind me of being in fifth grade. I had a portable in fifth grade. Incredible. Um, incredible portable. Um, so biblical Greek at 6.30 p.m. So if you've wanted to... Uh, read this and to be able to look at the Greek text and to be able to understand and know grammar and syntax and, and see the words of Christ of the Apostle Paul in the original Greek text, the word of God unsheathed, this is an opportunity for you. Yes, it will be hard. Yes, it will be an uphill climb. It'll be so worth it in the end. Also, listen very carefully. Someone who wants to remain anonymous has told me that for every single person who takes the class, get this, and for those who Finish the class. For those who finish, he will reimburse you your money that you paid for the class. I mean, it's not like it's a million dollars. It's $60. Actually, it might be a little more than that. Uh, 60 for the class. So $60 you will get back in your pocket if you finish in the spring. So that is someone who is really serious about this church being strengthened in the word. You don't have to take Greek if you don't want to. It's no obligation. But if you want to, you finish, you get your money back. What do you think of that? Thank you, generous person. September 13th, that's our, the start of our Sunday morning classes. We've got three going. Uh, Genesis, uh, Tommy will be teaching that. Tommy is a master teacher. Uh, he'll be teaching on Genesis 6 through 17. That's the flood through the Abrahamic covenant. Awesome, awesome stuff. Genesis is foundational to our understanding of the Bible and of reality. So that will be free, and that will be here both live and uh, through Zoom. Uh, the second class is Fundamentals of the Faith, taught by Charles. Uh, we're still working that out. Maybe it'll be live. Maybe it'll be online. We'll kind of work together on that. We'll let you know. But it's basically a Fundamentals, foundational doctrine class. What's Christianity all about? What's the Bible all about? If you feel like you need some time to kind of learn the, the basics, that's excellent. That's excellent. And so uh, Charles is a great teacher. So that would be worth you taking that. And then uh, finally, the sacred parable, uh, a class for young marrieds. Again, I put young in quote marks. Um, and so it's for anyone who's married and we just want to spend time going through the scriptures, looking at the sacred text. What, it, what is marriage? Why, why are you calling it a sacred parable? Well, sign up for the class, come find out. So uh, either you have or will receive a text today and I, when you get that, do they have it now or will it come after? The text uh, with, the, with the link to the classes? Oh, they got it yesterday. Okay, all right. Open up your texts. Do it now. I really mean it. Open up your phones. Swipe open that text. And if you're ready, sign up for a class. You can do it right now. How's that for application? Right now. Apply. Okay, so that's, that's that. Um, check in your bulletins for various Bible studies that are happening. Um, and uh, we'll do more announcements about those in the future uh, and emails as well, okay? Why don't we stand and let's do a benediction. May God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, may he give us lion-hearted courage, May he give us broken-hearted compassion for lost people, knowing that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.